Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin plays at an MVP level. When the Pella people left, you had no idea they had been here. You just had the new window. Pay as low as $19 a month per window or $75 per month on patio doors. Visit PellaWI.com today. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. First of all, as... Well, I think a lot of us thought it was going to happen intuitively, but you never know. Um, For those of you who are subscribers um, on Spectrum around here, uh, the standoff between Spectrum and Disney, which resulted in ESPN being taken off the air, that has now been settled. They have resolved it. And I think a lot of us felt, at least our sense was, that this was going to be resolved before Monday night football kicked off tonight because, um, well, I mean, Spectrum Spectrum represents about 20% of the, the ESPN customers uh, across the country. And just from a ratings perspective, for those those customers not to have access to it, it would have been bad for ESPN slash Disney. It would have also been bad for Spectrum slash Charter. So apparently a deal has been reached. The, the particulars are not public yet, but what it appears happened is the, um, the, the cable company, that would be Comcast, in other words, you know, um, that would be um, Charter, um, that don't Spectrum, they've agreed to pay ESPN more in rights fees. ESPN, and this was one of the sticking points, has apparently agreed that if you are an ESPN subscriber via Spectrum and you have the, the sports tier, not the basic tier, but the sports tier, you will be able to access the ESPN Plus streaming service at no additional cost. And the promise, I think, is that the same thing is true that once ESPN launches its own ESPN streaming service that duplicates what's on ESPN, if you're paying extra to uh, Spectrum, you'll be able to access that as well. Sort of like how it worked um, with, with HBO. I'm not sure if it still does, but it was with HBO. If you subscribe to HBO through Spectrum, then you got, quote unquote, free access to the HBO slash Max app. Um, so you didn't have to pay twice. And I think that that's what the deal turns out to be. What that means for people like you and me as to what it's going to do to our, our cable costs. Uh, if you're a Spectrum subscriber, I don't know what the answer to that is. And I think that remains to be seen. So you have that going on. All right. The final Jeopardy answer is A6. A6. Now, you don't have to call in. I just want you to think about it. A6, that is the final Jeopardy answer. What is the question? The question is, where in the local newspaper is there a reference to September 11th, 2001? Yes, September 11th, 2001, which would have been, what, do the math, 22 years ago, there is a reference to it um, 22 years later, 9-11, claiming more victims. 
And it's a piece that talks about how that people who were, for example, first responders or are still like suffering all sorts of problems with this. That appears on A6 of the local newspaper. Now, don't be too mad with the local newspaper because I read all sorts of national newspapers, so you do not have to. And some have very, very little or no reference at all to September 11th, 2001. For people who might not have been alive then or might have been a small child then, September 11th, 2001 is one of those defining moments in people's lives. Um, If you were of my parents' generation, you remember where you were when you heard that the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. You, You remember that. And it's just indelibly, you know, I could talk to my mom or dad. They remembered where they were. My grandparents remembered where they were. My generation, um, you remember where you were when you learned that John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy, had been assassinated in November of 1963. I mean, I, I vividly remember that. I was in first grade. I was in first grade at a public school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I can remember them coming in <clears throat> and announcing that the president had been shot. I remember everything, well, at least many things about the weekend with the procession and things like that. But you remember <clears throat> where you were when you learned that uh, President Kennedy had been shot. There are other seminal moments as well. Maybe, again, if you're of my generation, you remember where you were when Neil Armstrong first uh, walked on the moon. Um, I mean, I, I can... <laughs> I can vividly remember being with my parents and, you know, we were in a, and my, my little brother who was only about five years old at the time and, you know, being in a motel room, we were on our way driving somewhere and I can remember watching that on TV. <clears throat> but again, if you were of my generation, you remember that. Maybe there's some other things as well, the Challenger disaster. But for all of us now who were of my generation and younger, you remember where you were on September 11th, 2001, when 2,977 people were killed in various plane crashes, attacks on the Twin Towers, etc. And then there were also 19 hijackers that died as well. So two, almost 3,000 people died on September 11th, 2001. And... I understand it's 22 years later, but in the local newspaper, the coverage, as near as I can figure out in the print edition, is A6, and that's that's more prominent than a lot of newspapers played this nationally because, well, it's 22 years ago. Well, yes, it's 22 years ago, but it September 11, 2001, changed so much in our world. It changed the way... I think we think of ourselves as far as, you know, being immune from terrorist attacks. It changed in some more mundane ways. It changed security. I mean, it's, you know, they always had a little bit of security at airports, but nothing like happened after September 11th, 2001. For people, I know there's people who lost lives there. I know that there were people who, um, people who had family members who lost lives there. It, it forever, I think, Changed the way that we view terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. You can argue that the attacks on September 11th, 2001 is what led us into, you know, some of the, the, the foreign policy decisions that we made a couple years later. 
it was a seminal event. And the farther we get from it, I think the more we tend to forget. And that can never be allowed to happen. So this is a regular feature on the program. We have been doing this, I believe, every year since September 11th, 2001, and we do it again today. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. We can never forget. And in that spirit, my question to you is, what do you remember about September 11th, 2001? Where were you? When the Twin Towers was attacked, were attacked. Where were you when the Pentagon was attacked? Where were you when the flight crashed in Pennsylvania? What do you remember and where were you on September 11th, 2001? Back with your calls and texts in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Twenty two years ago, my guess is everybody probably over the age of thirty remembers where they were um, when the Twin Towers were attacked, when the Pentagon was attacked, when you had the you, the flight that ended up crashing in a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Um, almost three thousand Americans killed in the terrorist attacks, and it changed our lives in so many different ways. Matter of fact, there's something that, again, I think a lot of times people forget how this country united after that terrorist attack. There weren't Republicans and Democrats. There weren't conservatives and liberals. I think we we all came together, and for a brief period of time, we were all Americans. I also remember just the, the incredible uncertainty what had happened? You know, what was going on here? Was it really a terrorist attack? How could this be? How many more attacks would there be? Where were you on 9-11? Let's start with Kathy in Muskego. Hi, Kathy. Hi. Where were you on September 11th? Um, I was a teacher, and I was in my classroom. And um, <clears throat> one of the teaching assistants who had been on his break in the teacher's lounge um, there was a TV in there, and he, he was watching, and he came to tell me. And then um, he said that he would watch my kids while I went to see what was going on. Yeah. And, I mean, we didn't tell the children. But um, but the next day, you know, when they came back to school, they had sit on TV. And they, you know, they were only six years old. And in their little six-year-old's mind, they kept telling me that it happened again. Yeah, <laughs> but they were just, you know, seeing all the. But it was, um, it frightened me. It really scared me because I didn't know what was happening happening yeah. to our country. Did I'm I'm curious. I, did they dismiss school after this, or did the kids stay for the whole day? Do you remember? The kids kids stayed for the whole day, um, uh, but I know that the, they locked down the school, and I. That's what really scared me because yeah. I thought, well. You know what? What's going on that they think they have to do that? But I think it was just right. safety precaution. Everybody was kind of like in panic mode, and yeah. But anyway, but I remember it specifically, and yeah, um, to this day it saddens me. Oh, absolutely! No, thank absolutely. It, it is, and see, what was so 
All right, I, w- I was at I was home. I was working for WTMJ at the time, but my my shift started at noon. So when when this happened, I, I vividly remember I was living in Whitefish Bay, and I was in my office, and so I had the my my now late wife. She was watching TV in the other room. I don't know what she had one of the news channels on, and she calls and says, there, "There's," she said, "Turn on the television because there, there's something going on." And the the first plane had flown into the twin towers, and at the time, I think a lot of us thought that, okay, this is, it's like it's a private pilot or something, or it's pilot error, or how can something like this happen? And then, you know, whatever it was, 20 minutes or whatever later, when the second plane, you know, hits the other one, at that point in time, you know that, no, this isn't a commercial accident. This is, this is a real terrorist attack. And then you watch the towers, and then ultimately the the one ends up going down. Um, It was just... But you're just transfixed by this. And then again, not knowing what's going on. And then the word comes out about the attack on the Pentagon. And you're thinking, okay, how many more of these are out there? Denise in Oak Creek. Denise, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Um, I was home when um, it happened. I had just dropped my daughter off at school. I was on the phone with uh, DPW complaining about, you know, something. I don't even remember what anymore. And got got off the phone, turned around and looked at the TV. Oh, and and just a little caveat: I had my foot up because I broke my foot the day before. Okay. Um, it, you know, I had the TV on, had NBC News on the Today Show, and 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 I'm looking like, well, what's going on? Why? And then the second plane hit, and I'm like, oh, this is not good. Yeah. And the, I remember NBC News had, um, I want to say his name was um, Mikulaszewski, who was the uh, Pentagon correspondent. Okay. They had him, and then all of a sudden he said, um, I'm not sure what just happened, but we're being told to evacuate. The building just shuttered. They had him on the air when the Pentagon was hit. Okay. And um, I remember, you know, I was upset, be- and I was upset later in the day because her, my daughter was in fifth grade. Her teacher put it on in the classroom, and that really upset me because this was a defining moment that they had no clue what they were watching, yeah. and that should have been something discussed with the parents. But the biggest memory I have from that day is later on when my daughter was at soccer practice and how quiet it was. Oh, yeah. Because there were no planes overhead. It was so silent. Yeah. Um, that was scary. Oh, no, thanks. No, you're right. I mean, and it, and then, of course, for people who don't remember, what, what happened is air travel was grounded for at, at least a week. I had... I had a, a friend of mine. He and his wife were actually, they were en route. They were coming back. They were in France or something, and they were in the air over the Atlantic when this happened. Their plane in U.S. airspace was, of course, closed down. Their plane was diverted to Newfoundland, and, and they were there for like like a week. I, I had another dear friends of mine. They were in Hawaii, and, of course, Hawaii is, what, six or eight hours behind us and they were they were scheduled to to fly back that day, and I know by and of course they're you know when at the time when the twin towers was attacked because how because of the time difference this is you know it's in the middle of the night so when when one of my when my buddy gets up he calls the airline just to make sure the flight's on on track and hadn't turned on the TV or anything and this this story had been going on for a while and he's told the flights are grounded and he starts to he starts to kind of what do you mean the flights are grounded etc and they said sir turn on the television and you know they ended up being you know. 
know, in Hawaii for an, an extra week as well. Jeff, I was on board a U.S. Navy warship. I remember vividly walking through passageways, hearing quiet conversations, but not knowing fully what happened until our CO came over the ship intercom and informed us. Things changed big time for our operation that day. Well, I mean, yeah. Can you imagine you're you're in the military and all of a sudden you find out about this terrorist attack? I mean, then it's like, okay, are we going to war? And what is my life going to look like? Maureen in Menominee Falls. Maureen, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Um, I'm a native of Brooklyn, New York, and uh, I moved out here with four of my children. Um, I was working the PM shift that night. And I was sleeping in the next morning when my daughter came into the room and said, Mom, Dad, call from work. He wants you to turn on the TV. So I did that and uh, saw what was happening. And I have so many relatives and friends back there, including uh, the fifth child who was born here in Wisconsin and chose to go back to Brooklyn to go to college. And he was working at the time after he graduated, he was working there and he had to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge Mm -hmm. with many other people to get home that day. And it was so hard to try to reach him and the rest of my family there. Yeah, it's... And I come from a neighborhood that just uh, sprouted uh, policemen and firemen, and they were all at, down there at the scene. You know, that's... Some of them didn't survive. Yeah. You know, Maureen, that's where I, I think for a... There was, a, again, a brief period of time where the, the first responders, the police and the firefighters... When everybody saw what they did, the people, I understand, it's a, I understand it's a cliche, but it's also true. The people that are running one way into danger while everybody else is running away from it. Yes. Um, and, and you just, you have that respect and all those things. And I always thought about how that kind of changed where 15 years later, you've got the defund the police movement and we don't need police officers and things like that. I'm thinking, man, um, people forget about 9-11 pretty darn quickly. You're right. Um, Unless you were involved in some way. Yeah. No, thanks for the call. I I appreciate it. Let's talk to Steve in Sussex. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I am well, thank you. Where were you on 9-11? Well, I was was with an Air Force crew, actually the Air National Guard, and we were out in Portsmouth, New Hampshire at Pease Air Force Base. And we were actually scheduled that evening to fly a mission to air refuel some airlifters that were going to be going out over the ocean. And I remember getting up. We had stayed at a Hampton Inn. They had put us up in out there and going down, kind of just ready for the day. And everybody was sitting in the lobby area where they do the breakfast, watching on TV as everything was happening and just as a crew, I remember us all kind of being in shock, and right away the aircraft commander got a call. Um, we were on one of the only air refueling tankers that was gassed up at that time, and uh, we were asked if we could take off as quickly as possible. And I, my aircraft commander, who I work with to this day, he jokes about how 
I was driving the vehicle as we were going in, and I said, are we allowed to do what we need to do to get there quickly? And he remembers me driving over curbs and things <laughs> like that. But basically, uh, we got into the air right away, and we're positioned right over ground zero and refueled the fighters that got up and were flying the combat air patrol, the cap, over the Capitol wow. and New York. So it, it was pretty... Uh, pretty intense seeing the smoke and everything coming up and we spent the better part of that day in the air and when we got down that night uh, we went to a local bar and i bought drinks for the crew because we were pretty pretty ragged by that time steve thanks for the call thanks for your service um we are going to continue this um it's again i we can never forget And, and i understand 22 years is a long time I just, there were, I'm not saying this has got no coverage at all in the, uh, on, on the, the talk shows and on the news shows, but it's not gotten that much coverage. It was A6 today in the Journal Sentinel, and then that was only from the perspective of you have, I guess, some problems with some of the first responders, which is, of course, serious as well. But I, I just, I just never want us to forget our reaction to the terrorist attacks, our reaction as a country, because the truth is, if we do forget, this can happen again. Back with more of your calls in just a moment. Where were you on September 11th, 2001? Your recollections. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Poor Jeff. And, and of course, what, what we now know, <clears throat> 22 years later, is you had the almost you know 3,000 people who, who died on on September 11th, but but the toll continues to increase. The, these numbers are are just set staggering. More than 17,000 World Trade Center first responders. These are the firemen. These are the EMTs. These are the, the cops. Those people that are running into danger. More than 17,000 first responders on 9/11 have been diagnosed with cancer. And at least 1,650 have died from that disease. Now you, you can't. You can't pinpoint it and say, okay, all, all 17,000 of those people contracted cancer because they were exposed to all the top toxic fumes and the dust and all that thing. But it's, it's much higher than the general percentage of the population. And you know, and again, I, I'm not going to argue that all 17,000 got cancer as a result of their actions, you know, on September 11th and the immediate aftermath. But you cannot argue, I, I think, that that exposure to the toxic fumes, et cetera, is what triggered this disease in a number of people. Um, for, for civilians as well, here, here's the number of those who were at the site of the attacks, who worked, lived, or went to school in the area. More than 14,000 enrolled in the federal WTC, the World Trade Center Health Program. They've been diagnosed with cancer, and at least 856 have died from the disease. Now, once again, you can't say that, all right, that that, that was that was definitively the cause for all those people. But we know, or at least I, I'm, I'm willing to argue, <laughs> that, that it's pretty clear that, that for many of those people, I don't know, 50%, 75%, 80%, I don't know, but for a significant number of those people, it was that exposure to all the toxic fumes and something in the aftermath of 9-11. So the, the total continues to go up and up and up in the aftermath of this. Where were you? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's talk to Clara in Pewaukee. Clara, good afternoon. Hi, how are you? I am well, thank you. Where were you on nine eleven? 
Um, actually, we uh, were there. We, My husband's a Yankee fan, and we went out for the game the night before, uh, sat in the rain for two and a half hours, and next day got up. We're by Times Square, mm-hmm. saw that one of the planes got hit, but really didn't know what was going on, got onto the subway, and they stopped it on Canal, and we were down uh, probably about 10, 12 blocks from the towers, but we saw the towers fall and stuff, and then we had to walk back. And then we heard that the Pentagon was hit, and, of course, cell phones didn't work, and then we really got worried, but... We got out on Friday on the train. Were, were you, rather, you or your husband originally from New York, Clara, or was it just was he just no. is he just he's just a Yankee fan? So you just happened to be visiting when that happened, right? And he uh, he's been a Yankee fan all his life. And ironically, we went out this weekend for a Yankee game and sat in the rain for two and a half hours. <laughs> And yeah. I'm going, this cannot happen again. Uh, I mean, I had kind of, I was kind of nervous about it, uh, but it stopped raining and they got the game in and we did get back home. But, and the couple we went with, we called each other every year on 9-11. Well, um, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. What, what, just, just amazing stories. Chris in Cedarburg. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I am well, thank you. Where were you? What happened? What's your, what's your recollection of 9-11? Um, what my recollection is, about a week after, my husband is an electrical engineer. He was sent out to try and um, fix rehab, figure out what's going on with some of the extra, you know, businesses, buildings, how, you know, apartments. Right to try and get things up and running and he's and he's not sentimental he was a drill sergeant in the army but he said the worst was um to see the pictures of the people on the fence you know looking for their loved ones mm-hmm. and you know the dust and the dirt and um they were hauling out with dump trucks, you know, the extra, mm-hmm. you know, a rubble. Sure. And he said the smell was so bad because they had sprayed it with alcohol and God knows what. And all people, you know, who were working, you know, were smelling that, in the, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is a week later. Effect. Right. This is, you're talking yeah. about a week or 10 days later or whatever, and it's still like that. Can you imagine what right. it would be like in the immediate aftermath? Yeah. Right. And so, you know, he says, Chris, he goes, the cars, he goes, you know, the cars that were in the parking garage across the street were never going to be driven again, obviously. Right. They, um, you know, had all the um, after dust and whatever else it was, you know, all over them, like he said, like an inch thick. But, you know, people were looking for their loved ones because they didn't know if they were in the hospital. They didn't know if they wanted, you know, where were they? And mm-hmm. most were just not here anymore. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it was uh, pretty powerful. Chris, thank, thanks for calling. I'm sure it's just just incredibly haunting. And, and I, I do this, I do these segments every year for a lot of reasons. One that I, I just, 
I, I, it's a seminal event, and I think it's I think it's somewhat cathartic for just people to talk about where they were. Secondly, it's just I, I mean I'm aware that as time goes by and lots of stuff happens in 22 years and things change and we forget about this stuff, but this is. This is an event that you cannot forget about. And, and third, it's to remind people to put it in a little bit of perspective. So when we're at the airport and you're frustrated because they make you take your shoes off or you've got to take your computer out of the bag or they, they go through it and they, all right, you know, you've got your, 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 uh, your shampoo is in too big a container. And I, I, whenever that stuff happens, you just want to remind people that there is a reason for it. And and it, it all goes back to September 11th, 2001, when it was just a, a life-changing sort of thing. And, I, you know, we, we've done a lot of things since then, and maybe some of the stuff makes us safer. Maybe some of the stuff is virtue signaling. I, I don't know. But it, it's just it's a seminal event. It needs to be front and center on uh, certainly on the anniversary of this. It needs to be featured, and it, it needs to be something that is taught in school on a regular basis, because my concern is as we get farther and farther away, like I say, my guess is, you know, for anybody under the age of 30, it's probably, I don't, what is this September 11th? I kind of vaguely remember, and they didn't have the football games right away. I mean, it's, it's something like that. It's much, much more than that. And just like people, again, of my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation who lived through World World War two and Pearl Harbor. And, you know, you, for those of us that are my age, you know, you remember, I remember as a kid in first grade where I was, like I said, when you heard that President Kennedy had passed and moonwalk. And there's maybe a couple other events like that as well. But September 11th, 2001 is the defining moment of a number of generations. And we can never forget. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. number of people sharing their reminiscences of 9-11. It's certainly a conversation to have over the dinner table this evening. If you follow me on Twitter, I sent out a, a posting, and I, I, I think I express the frustration that many of us have with the choices that are, are being given to us by the, the major political parties at this point in time, if you believe the polls. I, I, from a Republican perspective, as you know, I, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. I continue to believe that he is not going to be the Republican nominee, but some of you disagree with me. And I, I understand if you look at the polls right now, it would suggest that yeah, he will be, but I don't think that's going to, I don't think that's ultimately going to happen. Then on the flip side, there, there's Joe Biden. And if you look at the polls, as we talked about, I think on Friday show, the poll numbers, for what it's worth, are, are absolutely abysmal. And they have been absolutely abysmal. For a long time. And yet Democrats continue to say, "Okay, well, we're going to embrace Joe Biden. And one of the things that I think a lot of people are troubled by, about 90 percent of Republicans, 70 percent of Democrats and uh, a large number of independents as well, is the fact that Joe Biden is going to be 82 years old if he would be reelected, which means if he served his full term, he would be 86. And with all deference, due respect to my friends who are in their 80s, almost every one of them would tell you that, I mean, 80 is not the new 50. It's 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 just not. And the latest example, if you watch Biden, it is clear that he is slipping 
badly. And if you follow me on on Twitter, he so he he's been they. they he went out. He went to Southeast Asia, and the idea was they're going to try to present him as this vigorous guy, and and you know re- respond to the fact that okay, he's he's getting all these people who think he's kind of too old. We had a press conference in Vietnam um, yesterday, which is just it's bizarre, and you know it's it's being picked up, and even aspects of the mainstream media that want to support Biden, they're they're coming to the conclusion that this is there's stuff going on. I've got. I've got a link. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I've got a link to some of the filming that's coming out, you know, from this press conference. And it's just it is bizarre and it is scary. So he's he's speaking in Hanoi on Sunday and you you have you, you have it at one point in time. He's questioned about. The lack of consensus on fossil fuels at, at the seminar, at this, at this conference. And, I mean, here's the way it's described. After appearing to ramble for several minutes, um, Biden then referenced the Western film actor John Wayne to attack climate change critics. Here's what he says. Follow me if you can. Quote, my brother was having famous lines from these movies that he always quotes, you know, and one of them is there's this movie about John Wayne as an Indian scout and they're trying to get, I think it was a patch, and one of the great tribes of America back on the reservation. And he's standing with a union, so he's, they're all on there, they're on their horses and their saddles, and there's three or four Indians and headdresses, and union soldiers are basically saying to the Indians, come with me, we'll take care of you, well, everything will be good. And this is Biden talking. And the Indian scout, the Indian looks at John Wayne and points to the Union soldier and says he's a lying dog faced pony soldier. Well, there's a lot of lying dog faced pony soldiers out there about about global warming, but not anymore. All of a sudden, they're all realizing it's a problem. There's nothing like seeing the light. He's a lying dog faced pony soldier. (laughs) This this is, you know, at this this you're on stage with all these world leaders and people are going what is he mumbling about? What is he talking about? Then there was another point in time where apparently he, he kind of went Mitch McConnell, where there was a question and he kind of mumbled something and then just stood there awkwardly silent for about 12 seconds or so. And you can hear the aide mouthing something. And then another point in time, he I'm not sure who I'm supposed to call on. And I he went off on this rift about, no, I ain't calling on everybody, etc. And then he said, I've got to go to bed. It's just you, you watch this press conference. And again, if the idea was his, his handlers were going to send him off to this this conference and we're going to take we're going to send him to Asia and we're going to demonstrate how vital and how with it is he is th- this one blew up badly when you're watching this press conference and again th- this and I, I want to be real clear because whenever I talk about this I always get some of the people well don't you understand Biden's better than Trump that's not my point <laughs> that that that's not my point my point is when you have people that are just flat out losing it. Regardless of what your politics are, we we need to be concerned. Did you see that Nancy Pelosi, um, she announced that she was going to run again, for goodness sakes? I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I I do know what it is. It's Potomac fever and it's this arrogance and this attachment to power that that makes people decide to to stay on well past their sell by date. But you watch this stuff with Biden. And my my comment to to Democrats is, is this is this really 
I mean, I understand you want to win. I understand you want a Democrat in the White House. But doesn't this concern you when you see Joe Biden clearly, clearly, clearly struggling? And if he's struggling now, what's it going to be like four or five years from now in all seriousness? And is this something that I don't know if you're a Democrat voter? Aren't you thinking, Okay, maybe we need to find an alternative and we need to thank you know, President Biden for his years of service. We need to thank him for beating Donald Trump. We need to thank him for getting through COVID or whatever. But this is not the guy that we want to be talking about, you know, leading us, you know, to the future. Just asking. And if you again, you watch this press conference, it's it's painful. And yes, I'm going to be the first to tell you watching Mitch McConnell in that press conference where he froze up twice. That's painful as well. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. We have a lot of great stuff on today's program. I, I want to bear with me. I just have, I have a personal story from yesterday. I had a, I had a really, really nice weekend. My, um, my, my old high school debate partner, who one of my very, very closest friends who just recently relocated to Virginia, he's been came in town last Tuesday for his 50th high school reunion. He's been staying with us. Evan's on his way back uh, to Virginia today. We, had, we just had, you know, a great time last week and um, a lot of stuff that we did this weekend. But I, I had an interesting experience on, on Sunday. And the um, I, I don't go to church as much as I should. I, I just I, I always feel better when I go to church, but I just I, I don't go as much as I should. But the, the church I go to, which is a church I grew up in around here, uh, the the minister very very well loved. I mean, and he's done a great job of kind of revitalizing th- this church after like a previous you know rector who who wasn't that great to be honest with you. And a lot of people left the church. Well, anyhow, for the last ten months or so, the the rector was was up for an archbishop position. You know, on the east coast, and you know the and it was one of these things where you, you want you want him to get it because he's so very good. And he'd be great at it. But at the same time, you don't want him to leave. You know, it was one of those things. So it was everybody was very, very torn. Well, they, they apparently on Saturday out in the, on the East Coast, they, they made the decision. And and he ended up while well, he was one of four finalists, he didn't get the job. So we, we made a point of going. Fran and I made a point of going to church on, on Sunday because just wanted to show our support and say, hey, we're. It really conflicted because on the one hand, really sorry you didn't get this job. You would have been great at it. But on the other hand, we're just thrilled to have you. And it was one of the most interesting experiences because during the, the service, he made an allusion to the fact that he was staying and very comfortable with that. And I have never been in church before outside a wedding where the entire congregation spontaneously stands and the place was packed and gives him a standing ovation. He, it was just it was just it was one of these amazing sort of things which showed the way the parishioners feel about Father Jeff and all. It was a standing ovation. Um, and, and he was just so very, very gracious and uh, about how, you know, he was excited to, to stay. And I'm sure there was a little bit of, you know, disappointment in not getting, you know, being elevated archbishop or whatever. But he was very, very happy where he was. And and it's just I was really, again, you're kind of conflicted because you love him and you want to say, hey, I, I hope, you know, I you know, I hope all the good things in the world. And you would have been great in this job. But at the same time, selfishly, you're like, I'm I'm glad you're, you're staying. And I've never been in church before when there was a standing ovation, you know, during a sermon. 
<laughs> That's what it was. It was a standing ovation during a sermon. I've seen standing ovations at weddings when they say, oh, let me present Mr. and Mrs. Wagner or whatever. But that's that. this was during a sermon, for goodness sakes. Just an absolutely tremendous experience and an interesting, well, the Packers game and the Packers win was the wrap-up to just a very, very pleasant weekend. When we come back, why are people stealing cars? I will explain and we will discuss. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. By the way, um, we appreciate all the different ways you can take in the show. You can listen over terrestrial radio. You can stream us. Uh, easiest way to do it is just go to WTMJ.com and uh, hit the li- listen live button. I know a number of us listen, a number of people listen simply by, you know, going to your Alexa or your Amazon things. And in addition, you can now watch us. You can see how we're dressed on any given day. Um, easiest way to do that is again, WTMJ.com. Just hit the watch live button. I get to see a running tally. We've got lots and lots of people who are watching or go to our YouTube channel. We've got a YouTube channel, WTMJ.com. You can watch us through that. Okay. Samantha producing the show today and always who are you on the phone with you have been on the phone the entire the entire break the news break is this like related to the show it's related to the show to my show you've been talking to somebody for 10 minutes huh i all right i have a question do you want for this starting story do you want the good news or the bad news what should we do good news or good news or bad news you want the good news first Okay, and all right, I'll, I'll give people the good news while you're on this conversation with somebody. It's been going on for like 10 or 15 minutes. Okay, I can't hold a conversation with anybody for 10 or 15 minutes. It's so, it's one of the difference, I think, between men and women. I, my wife, my wife can be on the phone with her various friends for as long as the cell phone battery charge will last. I mean, it's just, it is just amazing. Me, even though, I mean, I make my living, of course, talking to people, you know, over the phone. And I appreciate that. But, you know, my personal life, to the extent I'm on the phone, it is always, hey, um, you want to play golf at 9 o'clock on, on Tuesday? That, that's it. Okay, good. I'll, I'll see if I can get a tea time. That, that's what it is. Hey, I'm going to pick you up at 545 to go to the ball game. Hey, you want to meet at the bar? This is, I, I don't know that I've been involved in a conversation, at least a personal conversation, that lasts longer than two minutes. Now, sometimes you're in the conversations where you're calling an insurance agent or whatever. But as far as just like on the phone chatting, I just, I cannot do it. Okay. But Samantha says she wants the good news first. All right. Because I do, because I try to, you know, do those those types of things. I'm following instructions. I will give you the good news. Here is the most current numbers. I have the crime statistics for the city of Milwaukee. And let's look at motor vehicle theft. All right. In 2021, and we talked about this a lot, an all-time record. Almost 10,500 cars stolen. In 2022, that number dropped to about 8,000. But that's still 8,100. But that's still a staggering number. But it it dropped because, you know, it would almost be impossible to to go up over that. But it, it dropped. And here's the good news. The number continues to drop. Year to date. Year to date. Um, in 2021, 7,300 cars had been stolen. 
year to date, September of 2022, you had 6,000 cars that were stolen. And this year, year to date, there's been about 4,200 cars that are stolen. So let, let's give you the percentages. Um, that's, that's down year to date 43% from two years ago. And it's down 30% from last year. So the number of cars being stolen is down, but it's still like 4,200 cars. So, you know, presumably at this rate, I don't know what's that going to translate into more than 5,000 car thefts, but, but it's down. I, that is the good news. It is down. Lots of the, the crime numbers are, are down as well. Carjackings, unfortunately not. Carjackings are up, um, Carjackings are up big. Um, you know, year to date, 322 carjackings compared to two years ago, year to date, 236. Now, if you want to be a cynic, you would say that, okay, people are stealing fewer cars, but what they're doing is, um, they're, they're using more violence to take cars from people. But again, I, I let's, the, the good news, the number of cars in the city of Milwaukee is down. All right. They're being stolen is down. The bad news. The bad news is that if your car is stolen, there's almost no statistical chance or very little statistical chance that they will catch the perpetrator. Why do people steal cars in the city of Milwaukee? It's because they can, and they know that there is very, very little chance that they are going to get caught. Are you familiar with the term clearance? Well, as applied to law enforcement, clearance rate is the number of cases that the police solve, that they catch somebody. Now, this this isn't the number of people who are necessarily prosecuted or convicted, but it's the number of cases. we've. So if you have 100 murders and you solve 50 of them and you bring charges against those people, your clearance rate is 50%. Okay, so I... Today's TMJ4 has been doing an amazing job with these follow-up stories on on what's really going on with crime. So 2021, this is when you had 10,500 cars that were stolen. Okay, the the clearance rate, what do you think the clearance rate might be? 20%? Maybe one out of every five cars that are stolen, they, they catch who did it? 20%? No. 10%, one out of every 10 cars that are stolen, they catch. No. 5%, five out of every 100 cars that get stolen, they catch. Nope. In 2021, the clearance rate was 4.7%, which means they solved 490 car thefts, which means 10,000 Car thefts were unsolved, 10,000. So, uh, again, your odds were 5 in 100 that you that the person who stole your car was going to be caught. Okay, 2022, 8,100 car thefts. The clearance rate, well, they, they cleared 536 cases, which was a clearance rate of 6.6%, up slightly, um, so they got 536 cases cleared, which means 7,564 7, car thefts were not cleared, 
were not cleared. So out of 8,100 car thefts, 7,564 cases were not solved. Again, your chances of getting caught after you steal a car in the city of Milwaukee. And again, we're just talking about getting caught. This is the cops say, okay, we figured out who it was that caught the, that, that did this. And here, we're going to, we're going to go ahead and prosecute them. We're going to refer them to the DA's office. Then that's a whole other question about does the DA's office issue charges? Is there a conviction? What does a judge do? That's a completely different story. But statistically speaking, the chances of getting caught stealing a car in Milwaukee is slim to none, and there's a good chance that Slim is on a bus out of town. Now, I don't have, they don't have the clearance numbers for for 2023 yet, but there's nothing to suggest that that number is anything significantly different. That the number is, if it was 6.6 percent last year, there's nothing to suggest that it's it's much more than 6.6 percent. So let let's give. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they've managed to get the clearance rate up to 10%, and I doubt it's 10%. One out of every 10. That means, okay, currently, I mean, do the math, 4,183 cars stolen. That means four, if, if the clearance rate is 10%, which it probably isn't, but 10%, that means 418 cases have been solved, which means, uh, you know, 3,000, whatever, 3,000, you know, almost 4,000, uh, 3,000, it means, you know, almost like 3,600, I guess would be the math, haven't been. Bottom line of all this is people are stealing cars and they know that they're not going to get caught. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. This, to me, is another one of these significant quality of life issues. You have to be able to leave your car parked in your driveway if you live in the city of Milwaukee or parked out in front of your house or you need to be able to park your car on the street outside of a bar or a restaurant or in a parking lot of a shopping center. You need to be able to do that with some degree of confidence that when you come out, your car is going to be there. And until we start catching the people who are doing this, that's never, ever going to happen. Now, is it a good thing that there's only like 4,200 cars stolen year to date this year instead of 6,000 last year? Of course, it's a good thing. But when they're not solving the cases, when nine out of 10 car thefts plus go unsolved, that is not getting the car thieves off the street. This needs to be a priority. And if that means that the Common Council and the mayor have to figure out a way to hire a bunch more cops to, I don't know, create car theft uh, details that are going to concentrate on not just returning the cars, but catching the people who are doing it, then they got to do it. Shouldn't this be a priority? And should we be appalled at these numbers? And again, this this isn't even what happens to people after they get caught. This is the chance of getting caught is slim to none. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment.
855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Let, let me put this in perspective. 2021, 10,000, I'm going to round up just slightly, but the numbers hold. 10,500 cars were stolen on the mean streets of the city of Milwaukee. They, they solved 490 of those cases, which means out of 10,500 car thefts, 10,000 were not solved. 10,000. 2022, 8,100 cars were stolen from the mean streets of Milwaukee. They solved 536, which means 7,564 car thefts were not solved. You're, if you get caught, the reality is, if you get caught stealing a car, um, you are you are one of the unluckiest you-know-what's-around because the chances are you know, better than 9 out of 10, maybe 95 out of 100, that if you steal a car, you're not going to get caught. And we wonder why it is that people are stealing cars over and over and over again. I think this is an ultimate quality of life matter. And any of you who've had your car stolen, I think, would attest to this because – yeah, I mean, I, I understand if you're not carjacked, it's not a crime of violence per se, but your car is gone. You've got to figure out, you know, what you're going to do, how you're going to get it back, how you're going to deal with insurance if you've had all that, the inconvenience, the invasion of your privacy that's there. And the, the idea that we're only clearing five, six percent of the cases got to be unacceptable. And I don't know why people aren't calling their aldermen and saying, what is going on here? I don't think it's a fault of the police. It's not like they're not trying, but they're grossly undermanned when it comes to this. And again, I'm not even talking about prosecuting the car thieves. I'm talking about just catching them because, you know. You know that the people that are out there stealing these cars are doing it over and over and over and over again and are going to continue stealing cars until they are caught. But it doesn't appear that we're doing a very good job of catching any of them. Let's talk to Ralph in Milwaukee. Ralph, you're first. Hello. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? Um, I've had a, a car stolen from me when I once on vacation in California, once here in Milwaukee. Um, so I know what it's like. It's, it's tough. But I, I also think uh, the police, you know, they need a lot of help. I also think we should look at a technology solution to this. I believe that with new, all the new cars coming out and the price of them, with, especially with how they're so expensive, they should all have trackers. Every single new car coming out should have a tracking device on it so the police can automatically find out where it is, go recover that car. Just like your phone. Your phone's got a tracking unit in it, and everybody's accepted those already. Why can't we accept those for automobiles and well, stop this this madness? Because it's happening all over the country, not well, just more. Well, Ralph, I'd have to, I mean, I have to think it through, and I'd have to think about how that how that works out and you know the whole privacy issues and things like that and you know who who has access to the tracking information i i mean look i i have no problem with with using technology to make it more difficult to steal cars but i guess as as an underlying point if you want to ask me what the biggest problem is with car thefts it's that there's so damn many car thieves that are out there and they are out there operating with impunity. They steal cars and think they can get away with it because the numbers show overwhelmingly they do get away with it. 
And, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons that people steal cars, from gang initiations to joyriding to, you know, fill in the blank. We want to use it to other for other crimes or we want to take the cars to chop shops and, you know, sell them for parts or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's still your car that is being stolen. One of our texters says, Jeff, they don't even dust the cars for prints. They don't investigate anything in the city of Milwaukee. So start there. But it's bad, bad, bad for the quality of life and for business, period. Well, yeah, that's that's the thing. I mean, if you 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 let let's and okay, first of all, the the first quality of life thing is if you actually live in the city of Milwaukee and you know, you now are in a situation where you can't leave your car now I'm not talking about even running, you can't leave your car in your driveway or you can't leave it in on the street because in front of your home because you're afraid it's going to get stolen. Well that's that's a huge quality of life thing that says, Okay, well why am I going to live here? I gotta find some else place other place to live where I mean the car is not going to be gone in sixty seconds. But if you're talking about attracting businesses or attracting people to come and patronize businesses, okay, who wants to Come down, park your car on the street, go to a restaurant, and then come back and find that your car is gone. And I will tell you, as somebody who lives in the suburbs, this is a factor among lots of people that I hear on a regular basis. It's, well, gee, we used to like to go to that restaurant, for example, or we used to like to go to that store, but there's just on-street parking, and we don't feel comfortable leaving our car on the street for a couple hours. Now, there's some restaurants I know that have, you know, valet parking and private sort of stuff and all, but, you know, a lot of places, I mean, it's just, hey, you, you park on the street or you park in the public parking lot and you kind of take your chances jeff everybody should put an air tag in their car so they can track it themselves in case it gets taken also the police are understaffed and less motivated to do things that we all know the prosecutors are just going to let people off for wouldn't it be interesting if the not crime busting district attorney of milwaukee county who is by the way up for re-election next year in case anybody chooses to run against him and he chooses to run for re-election wouldn't it be interesting if somebody would come out and say look we're going to make this a priority because it affects quality of life you know we are going to encourage vigorous investigation of these car theft cases and then you know what we're going to prosecute we're not going to wait now right now as a practical matter you know yeah if you steal a car you blow through a red light at 90 miles an hour and you hit and kill somebody. Well, yeah, you're going to get prosecuted for doing that in that stolen car and they'll throw in the stolen car charge. But why do we have to wait until it's the eighth or ninth or tenth time that somebody has stolen a car, driven 90 miles an hour, run through that red light and hit and killed somebody? Why do we have to wait until somebody's dead before we realize, oh, car theft is a pretty big deal? And wouldn't it be interesting if you had a district attorney who said, all right, I'm going to I'm, I'm going, here's what I need. I need, I believe this is a big deal. State legislature, I want five, I want five new positions and I am going to dedicate them to solving this car theft problem. This is going to be the car theft task force. I want these people. This is what these ADAs are going to do. And you know what? We're going to track the different judges and we're going to let people publicly know what the sentences are that are coming out for this type of stuff. And, you know, we're going to try to waive juveniles into adult court if they're chronic car thieves and things like this. We're just going to realize that this affects the quality of life instead of just simply saying, all right, well, you know, we're busy. And I don't mean to indict the cops on this because I get it. There, there are. There's a lot of stuff going on. But these clearance rates are abysmal. 
That's a fancy word of saying way. That's a fancy college reading word of saying they suck. How can you how can you only clear five percent of all the car theft cases in a major city? How can we put up with this? Nancy in Burlington. Nancy, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Um, I live in Burlington. Yes. My car insurance for the past year and a half, a year and a half ago was $83 a month on a eight and a 10 year old car. I'm retired. I went into the car agency, our insurance agency and asked, can we reduce it? I only drive like three, 300, mm-hmm. not even 300 miles a month. Sure. And they reduced it by $10, $10. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. So now it went from $83 a year and a half ago up to now $104 a month. Okay. I don't even live in Milwaukee. She, she said it's because of the car thefts, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, the cost of replacing a used car. Yep, yep. But our cars are 8 and 10 <laughs> years old, for God's sake. Yeah. No, you're Nancy. No, thank, thanks. And we for, both have perfect yeah, records. Yeah. No, you're. No, think you're. You're right. This is a number of people. Thanks for calling because there's a number of people that are making the same point on 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 the text line that it's it, it it's this problem this epidemic affects people all sorts of people because you're exactly right. It if your your insurance rates are going to go up because insurance is all about you know spreading the risk out. So if you're living in an area where there's lots of you know cars that are stolen. Even though your car might not have been stolen, well, people in your neighborhood or people in your area have their cars stolen, so the insurance companies figure there's more likelihood that your car is going to get stolen, so that means that you end up paying more. And so you're getting stuck for this. You're exactly right. That's why this is a big deal. It, it, it just is. And I look, and I appreciate there's crimes of violence that go on, but I was stunned when I'm looking at these numbers. A clearance rate, you know, six out of a hundred, seven out of a hundred, ten out of a hundred is appalling. It's just absolutely appalling. That goes back to the whole question of why do criminals commit crimes around here? It's because they can. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Very glad to have you with us. All right. We're just warming up on today's program. Okay. Samantha, are you ready for something that is going to generate a huge response from listeners, I believe? You are ready. Okay. She's saying yes. She's giving me the thumbs up. Okay. Here's the deal. Okay. The governor of New Mexico, who is a liberal Democrat, her name is Michelle Lugin Grisham, she has just announced a 30-day ban on carrying firearms in public areas or state property in Albuquerque in and in a county. Now, Albuquerque, um, the state of New Mexico, the state of New Mexico, the law allows people to carry concealed weapons if they have a valid concealed carry license from New Mexico. Also, non-residents, there's reciprocity. So non-residents, so if you've got a, a, carry, a concealed carry license from Wisconsin, I believe, this is not me giving legal advice, but I, I believe you can also then, through that permit, 
um, you you can carry the particular firearm that you are licensed for. So they've got they've got a degree of reciprocity that's there. The governor has decided to ban ban regardless of the state of the law. They have suspended the concealed carry permit under the guise of an emergency public health order, which applies to open carry, which is, you know, people carry the guns openly, and also concealed carry. It is now banned in most public places, from city sidewalks, from urban recreational parks. In other words, you know, where you would normally, and let's not even talk about open carry for a minute, let's talk about concealed carry. You've got the permit that licenses you to do that. You've been approved by whatever authorities there are, so you you have a right to carry a concealed firearm. She has now issued an emergency order which says that carrying a firearm, um, either open or concealed, with the exceptions for law enforcement and licensed security guards, is now now um, illegal. Residents with gun permits can still have weapons on private property. Um, when traveling with a gun, a person must transport it in a way that makes the firearm inoperable, in a locked box or with a trigger lock, for example. So under normal circumstances, you, you've got your concealed carry permit. You could have your firearm with you in your car. Um, you could have your firearm under the seat. Now, under this emergency order, you would only be able to transport your firearm in a locked box or with a trigger lock. All right. Um, she said she did this because there have been several recent fatal shootings of children, including an 11-year-old boy who was killed outside a minor league baseball stadium this week in Albuquerque. She said the shootings have amounted to an epidemic and the suspension allowed for a cooling-off period for the state to figure out the best way to address gun violence and public safety. She said she expected that the suspension would be challenged in court, could not guarantee it would stand. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, so you've got gun violence in Albuquerque, and this applies to um, a lot of the urban areas. I don't know that it applies to the rural areas. I think there's a restriction there. But but again, her answer is, okay, Albuquerque is a mess. There's a reason they set Breaking Bad in Albuquerque with all the meth, deal, meth dealers and stuff. And if you've ever been to Albuquerque, and I apologize if you are from Albuquerque, but it's probably a good place to be from. Um, there is, like I say, there's a reason why they had Breaking Bad in Albuquerque. But okay, so she says crime is out of control. We got people that are being shot. My response, my reaction is to say to the people who have legitimate concealed carry permits, I am going to suspend your permit. And if you don't pay attention, you don't do this, you're going to be fined up to $5,000. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. The governor seems to think that by going after those who have concealed carry permits, it's going to reduce gun violence. What do you think about that? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Stick around. Jeff Wagner is right around the corner. In this market, you'll find Fisher Investments is different than other money managers. Different how? Aren't we all just looking for the hottest stocks? Nope. We use diversified strategies to position our clients' portfolios for their long-term goals. You don't just provide cookie-cutter portfolios? No. We tailor our clients' portfolios to their goals and needs. But you still sell investments that generate high commissions for you, right? 
No, we don't sell commission-based products. We're a fiduciary, the highest standard of care for a financial advisor. It means we're obligated to act in our client's best interest. So when do you make more money? Only when your clients make more money? Yep, we have one transparent management fee structured, so we do better when our clients do better. Sounds like you really look out for your clients. We do, because our priority is helping them achieve a comfortable retirement. That might be why most of our clients come from other money managers. Visit FisherInvestments.com to find out why investors like you switch to us. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. QC Kinetics can change your life. You can live again without that chronic joint pain and without drugs or surgery. Hey, it's Greg Matzik. QC Kinetics is advanced regenerative medicine. They take your body's own concentrated healing properties and put them right into your joint to restore and repair that damaged tissue that's causing all of that horrible pain. Patient satisfaction reports are astonishing. Finally, a real alternative to the old ways of dealing with pain. And unlike surgery, there is no downtime with QC treatments. If you have constant pain in your knees, hip, shoulder, or back, you have to give a call and get a free consultation from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics. Imagine this fall, moving around pain-free, doing the things you love again, like walking, hiking, and playing with the grandkids. Call QC Kinetics and see how the latest advances in precision regenerative medicine can attack your pain and bring you lasting relief. Now is the best time to get started, and they're right here in Milwaukee. Call 414-285-3474. That's 414-285-3474. Again, 414-285-3474. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Okay, so New Mexico, particularly the city of Albuquerque, they've, they've got a huge problem with gun violence. Okay, lots of urban areas, including Milwaukee, have problems with gun violence, and they've had a number of children who've been shot. Sounds familiar? The governor's response is, forget the Second Amendment. I am going to ban the open carry of firearms, and I'm also going to suspend concealed carry. We have a state law that allows people to go get a permit and then they can carry a firearm uh, in a concealed fashion that I'm going to suspend that. So people will no longer be able to carry firearms on public sidewalks. If you're going to transport a firearm, it can no longer be in the car. It has to be, well, it can be in the car, but it can't be like on the seat next to you or under the seat unless it's got a trigger lock on it or unless it's in a gun safe or something like that. And People, her idea is, well, I think this is going to help deal with crime and violence. Okay, it seems to me that there's a a, a little bit of a logical step that is missing in this. 855-616-1620. Let's start with, um, let's see, Jeff in Waukesha. Hi, Jeff. You're on WTMJ. Hi. Yeah, you're right. There is a logical step missing here, and the logical step is you would check the facts before you go out and make it, come out with an idea like that. And if you would check the facts, and I've checked, and it's, you know, unless something's happened within the last six months, there has not been a case in Wisconsin where a concealed carry permit holder has been involved in a crime using a gun. So tell the governor to check the facts, and if he can make any sense out of what he's doing after doing that, He's got bigger problems. 
Yeah, yeah thanks again. And of course, this is New Mexico, and and it's not it's not Tony Evers, but this is it's it's New Mexico, and the idea is okay. And I, I think you're exactly right. It, my question would be okay of of the gun violence, and and thanks for the call, Jeff. I appreciate you appreciate you joining us. Um, of of the gun violence that we are talking about, and, and nobody. You know, nobody supports children getting shot or anything like that. But of this gun violence that you believe is a public health crisis, how much of that was caused by people with uh, concealed carry permits? Let's not even talk about open carry. How much of that was was caused by the people who've, who've jumped through the hoops? Now, I, I mean, I... Is it possible that there might be one such situation? Is it possible that you can point to, well, there was this one case where you had the concealed carry permit holder who had the, was involved in the road rage or something. But, I mean, I'm willing to bet, just like we were talking about car thefts and clearance rates in the last segment, I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of the gun crimes that she is legitimately concerned about aren't being caused by people with concealed carry permits. But yet that's the solution. I mean, I can give you all sorts of solutions, I I think, to maybe dealing with the epidemic of gun violence. But picking on concealed carry holders, the people who law-abiding citizens who have these permits, I'm willing to bet that's not where the problem is. Let's talk to Lucy in Milwaukee. Lucy, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi. I wasn't listening when your previous caller was on. I think I'm just going to echo him. I'd love to hear some of your suggestions for what we could do. But you know, I live in the, on the near west side of Milwaukee near a lot of what's going on. And I can tell you the people who are recklessly shooting other people and getting in street fights and sometimes hitting kids as collateral damage do not give a you-know-what if they have a permit. Right. Not permits. Yeah. I don't well, care about permits. Well, and my guess is, my guess is, a lot of them, maybe not all, but many of them, that they own, they're 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 felons or whatever, or they're under some sort of supervision, so they're not legally allowed to have firearms in the first place. Yeah, the permits are the last thing. That <laughs> permits are the last thing that are out there. Yeah, I'll get off the phone and let okay. you tell us what your ideas okay. are for what we could do about the violence. Okay. Th- thanks for call, Lucy. Well, I th- this instead of addressing the problem at its root, which is, and again, I I go back to this, the root to me is you've got to be aggressive in dealing with people when when they are caught with firearms in the first place. I'm the guy that said, if it means we've got to build more prisons, let's build more prisons. Felons in possession of a firearm. I come from the federal system where committing a crime with a gun, that was an automatic five-year enhancer. Why do we have so many felons who commit crimes with guns, well, it's just like the car thefts. They do it because they can, because they know that there's very, very little consequence for this. So, I mean, that's that's where I'd start. Crimes committed with guns, felons in possession of a gun. Let's start with the people who aren't legally allowed to have guns, because, I, I mean, again, my, my point is, Maybe, you know, you just wake up one morning and you say, hey, today's the day I'm going to go grab a gun and hold up a liquor store. Maybe you just wake up and that's the day you're going to do it. Or today's the day I just wake up and grab a gun and say I'm going to drive down the freeway and I'm going to start shooting at the person who cut me off. Okay, so maybe maybe that's the case. But we all know the reality is that many, many, many and probably the majority of people who are involved in those types of crimes have been involved in similar types of crimes. So 
First of all, I, I think it is consequences that you have to impose. You have to prosecute people. You have to hold them accountable. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Yeah, my sense is what the governor of, of New Mexico is doing is also screamingly unconstitutional. And, and interestingly enough, there's a number of county sheriffs who are saying we're not going to enforce this order because we're afraid that there's going to be civil liability if we start, you know, making arrests and confiscating guns. And so, I, I mean, I don't it, it's kind of a mess, but but that's that's not the bigger point. The, the point is, you know, what a stupid knee jerk reaction that you have here. And I look and I I appreciate the need to try to you know deal with an epidemic of, of crime and gun violence and things like that. But this idea that we're going to target people who are otherwise law abiding citizens including those who've jumped through all the hoops to get the concealed carry permits. And we're now suddenly going to say, okay, here, you, you've got that permit, but we're not going to let you, I don't know, drive. Let's say, I always come up with this example because when I was growing up, I, I knew a I knew a kid. His dad was a jewelry salesperson. And this is back in the day when Wisconsin did not have concealed carry. He didn't care. He, he, he'd been held up three times because people knew who he was and they knew that he, you know, oftentimes had sample cases out there that had lots of jewelry in them. And he, after he got held up the third time, he carried a gun, carried a loaded gun under the front seat of the car. Now, at the time, you couldn't get a concealed carry permit, and what he did was illegal. But he was not the crime problem. And we had forced, because of this, oh, we know we we can't let otherwise law-abiding citizens have access to guns to defend themselves. You know, we'd rather have this guy be at a target. So he, after the third robbery, just said, to heck with this. I'm I'm carrying this particular firearm. I mean, here's the the bottom line of this. You know, this it's like the low-hanging fruit. Let's pick on the people who are doing all the right things. Uh, I don't think this is necessarily going to go anywhere, and this is one that pretty much – I would imagine guarantees that the next time she runs for re-election, if she survives impeachment, because, by the way, lots of Democrats in um, both New Mexico and nationwide are saying, well, this is really a bridge too far. You can't do this. So if she survives an impeachment action, don't be surprised if that comes around. Um, running for re-election on this particular position is kind of tough. All right. Coming up in the two o'clock hour, it's going to be a unique hour. Astrid Kutcher, Mila Kunis. Jamie Lee Curtis and Vladimir Putin. All those people will be the subject of discussions. All right. It's going to be a trifecta. I guarantee it. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. I was trying, I was trying to come up with an analogy during the during the break, and, and the way I was going to lead into this topic. So I got a story to just I got a comment to offer on a policy that the Milwaukee Police Department has just announced, and the policy is so dumb. If the policy were any dumber, it would fill in the blank. And I, I was trying to think, you know, okay, uh, oink. You know, if, if, if so, but, but pigs are smart. Pigs are smart animals. Um, if the policy were any more dumb, it would honk. But, but geese, geese are, are smart animals. You know, so, uh, if the policy were any more dumb, it would gobble. But actually, turkeys are, are very, very smart animals as well. Birds, you know, creatures. So I'm in a position where 
I'm really struggling to try to find the appropriate analogy for how dumb this particular policy is. So I'll let you fill it in. If this policy were any dumber, it would, and then, you know, fill in the blank for whatever you think would be appropriate. Here's the headline in the local newspaper. Milwaukee police will no longer immediately report the gender or the gender of crime victims or their race. All right, so if there is, all right, there is a story. Somebody is murdered at 9 o'clock at night on one of the mean streets of Milwaukee, and the reporters show up. The Milwaukee Police Department will not give a description of the victim. They will not describe the victim's gender. They won't say if it's a man. They won't say if it's a woman. And they won't uh, report the victim's race. If that policy were any more dumb, it would fill in the blank. Now, you might say to me, Jeff, I don't understand. Why Why would they, they not do this? Because obviously, you know, there's a huge public interest in knowing, you know, what's, what's going on here. Are there... Um, you know, are there uh, is there a serial killer or a killer that's out there that's targeting, you know, white women or black women or black men or white men or whatever? I mean, doesn't the public have a right to know who it is that's dying or being a victim of crime or being carjacked? I mean, don't people have the right to know if people are being killed because of their gender or their race or whatever? You would think that this would be a, a basic sort of thing. Oh, three women were sexually attacked um, near the blank campus, you know, last night. Well, isn't it relevant that you have three women that are sexually attacked as opposed to three males that are sexually attacked? Of course it is. So the question becomes, why would the city of Milwaukee adopt such a god-awful, stupid policy? Well, here it is. Because they want to be politically correct. And this is one. One of our texters said, Jeff, I'm, I'm going to watch you on YouTube, and you can watch us on the WTMJ channel on YouTube. I'm going to watch you because during one of those last conversations, it sounded like your head was going to explode. This, this may be the one that actually gets my head to explode because the Milwaukee police has now decided that they are not going to report the gender of crime victims or their race. So, again, if somebody is sexually assaulted at 8.30 or three or four women are sexually assaulted, they're not going to tell us they're women. Why? Here is what the Journal Sentinel writes. The Milwaukee Police Department's decision to not immediately report the gender of crime victims in media releases, in addition to not reporting victims' race, is being praised. Now, think about who would praise this. Praised by LGBTQ groups, um, Heather Ho, uh, H-O-U-G-S, MPD chief of staff, said Thursday the decision came after discussions the department had with members of the LGBTQ community. It was announced late Wednesday afternoon. Um, uh, so here is their, their concern. Members of the LGBTQ community have said that misgendering and dead naming that's using a former name of transgender victims can be considered another form of violence. So let me put this in perspective. So let's say you have someone who is murdered 
And the report comes out that the person who was murdered is a male. And then it turns out that the person really wasn't a male. The person was transitioning and actually identified as a female. So the argument is you have victimized the victim by identifying themselves uh, them as a female instead of a male or or vice versa. I understand it makes no sense. I understand it just makes your head want to explode. So in an F plus, how often does this happen? Or dead naming. I, I like this. So um, Gary is now going by Gloria, but when they uh, when he is a victim, they identify him as Gary or her as Gary, which is I don't know the, the the given name or whatever. And it turns out that Gary, you know, identifies as a female and is using the name Gloria. Oh, okay. So the the rare instances that this would occur, and I'm sure it does occur on occasion. Gee, we thought it was a male that had been assault, had been assaulted and you know we didn't find out till later on in the investigation that this wasn't uh the person was now identifying as a female. Okay, I I'm sure that that does in fact and has happened on a couple occasions. But that is that is the extremely rare situation of the thousands and thousands and thousands of crime victims throughout the city. What what is the possibility that this happens? Dead naming or you happen to misidentify somebody who is sexually assaulted, for example, and, you know, it's it's a female who identifies as a male or whatever. Three, four, five times out of thousands and thousands. So in order to make sure that we don't offend or hurt somebody in that particular situation who might be a bit uncomfortable with being, I don't know, again, misgendered, we're going to take the thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of crime victims, and we're not going to tell the public what is going on in the streets. We're not going to describe to the public whether or not there's somebody that's out there that is attacking women or people that they believe to be women. We're not going to um, identify you know, people who are out there attacking young black males or young Hispanic males because, well, we, we don't want to, I don't know, we want don't want to take the risk that somewhere, somehow, down the line, we're going to misgender. Look, I understand that there is a role for political correctness in this world, but at some point in time, don't you have an obligation? Isn't the overriding the overriding example and requirement for law enforcement to be transparent and honest with the public. And th- this idea that we are going to intentionally withhold information from the public about, in some cases, stuff that the public might want to use to protect itself, all because we're afraid that somewhere, somebody down the line, one out of 10,000, it might result in a misgendering or a dead naming situation where it might be more traumatic for that person's family or whatever. So we're going to put the rights of, and I put rights in air quotations, the rights of that person up ahead of the rights of the general public to know what is going on with crime in the community. Now, the argument is fair that you say, okay, you know, maybe we want the police to take a beat and to take a pause and make sure that they're accurate in the information that they are reporting. 
Okay, I, I think that's a fair comment. But to say that we're not going to tell the public this because, well, again, um, somebody somewhere somehow may be offended if we end up in, again, one of those situations where it turns out to be somebody who identifies as one gender and is actually the other gender, and we misgender them when we're talking about how they were a crime victim. So because of our concern about that one situation, we are going to take the 99-point-whatever percent of the other cases, and we're not going to describe for the public you know, what's going on. Same thing, you know, is, is true with this idea of race that, okay, we're afraid that, um, we were afraid that if we report the actual numbers, it's going to show that more of this type of person or that type of person is a crime victim and we don't want that information that's out there. Well, okay. Well, maybe the public has a right to know if there's somebody that's out there that's preying on um, you know, black men or black women or Hispanic men or Hispanic women or white men or white women or whatever. Why don't we just tell people this is a novel concept for the police to consider? And this would be my comment to Police Chief Norman. Why don't we just do something novel? Why don't we tell the public the truth? And why don't we be transparent with that and then let the chips fall where they may? And if it turns out somewhere along the line we have dead named someone or misgendered someone well then we can just apologize we can say hey look as it turns out you know we identified that this person you know had male genitalia we thought it was a we thought we thought she was a male so we identified that or we used the name of the records that we found when we identified them and now it turns out that gary is gloria okay that that is going to happen necessarily but let's be accurate let's be transparent let's Tell the public the information we have, and let's not withhold the stuff because, gee, there's somebody out there that's preying on white females. Well, we don't want to say it's females because one of those white females might actually have been a biological male or whatever. It's just flat out crazy. It is a staggeringly dumb policy. It is done in the interest of political correctness, and the Fire and Police Commission should be rolling this one in like right away. Back with more in just a minute. Well, thanks for letting me vent today. It's just one thing after another. I'm okay. We're not going to tell. We're not going to tell the public whether whether a couple college age women were assaulted um, because well, we're concerned that. I don't know, we might misgender one of the women, and one of the women might actually be a male, or one of the women might be a female who's transitioning to a male, and, and that victim that victim then might be bothered. So we're, the possibility, remote as it might be, that that might occur is going to essentially make us withhold relevant information from the general public about the state of crime in the city of Milwaukee. I swear to God, you cannot make this stuff up. Okay, Aston Kutcher. Mila Kunis, you know who they are, right? My producer here, Samantha. Oh, you're making a face. You're not fans of them? Okay. They, um, well, of course, they, they, they shot rocketed to fame, I guess, um, starring on that 70s show, uh, which was on a number of years ago. I liked, I liked the show. And then they've gone on, uh, Kutcher is in a number of, of movies. She's with, she was in like the Black Swan and stuff. It, but anyways, the, these are, these are one of the kind of like in couples in, in Hollywood sort of kind of. And so they're, they're around doing all sorts of stuff. 
as we discussed last week, uh, their co-star on that 70s show, a guy named Danny Masterson, he played, if you're familiar with the show, he played Hyde. And he was, they, they were all supposed to be like high school classmates together, but he was like five or six or seven years old, o- older than everybody. So he's, he was like a 25-year-old playing, you know, a 16-year-old or, or whatever. Um, Masterson has fallen on hard times. He was convicted earlier this spring of two counts of, of rape, raping two different women a decade or two ago, they, these were old charges, etc. But he was he was convicted. Okay, so he's convicted in the spring. He was awaited awaiting sentencing, and the sentencing occurred last week. So here's what happens. Why are we talking about Mila uh, Ashton Kutcher and uh, Mila Kunis? Well, the two of them, at the request of their co-star and friend Danny Masterson, at the request of the family, they wrote letters, character references for the guy who has been convicted of two counts of, of rape. Um, you know, the support letters, um, let's see, were the character letters. The two of them described Masterson as a decent human and role model for others. <clears throat> uh, she wrote that Masterson was an outstanding role model and friend. Now, this is after... He's been convicted of, you know, found guilty of of a couple counts of rape. Yeah, she wrote that he was an outstanding role model and friend and an exceptional older brother figure. Huh. I don't know. I I have a younger brother. I I hope, hope that that's not how he relates to me on. Okay. He was an exceptional older brother figure. Uh, Kutcher explained in his letter that Masterson always showed decency, equality, and generosity. Um, regarding this, this thing. So they write these, these character letters, uh, for him. All right. Well, surprise follows surprise. You know, these letters, of course, become public and there is an immediate backlash where you have all these people that are sitting there saying, okay, wait, wait a second. You know, here's somebody that's convicted of, of multiple counts of sexual assault. And you're talking about what an exceptional role model and older brother figure and how great he is. So there, there's this huge, huge response to this. And interestingly enough, probably after consultation with their agent and being afraid that this might cost them gigs, um, they end up coming out with a statement. So this is the latest thing because you know, you, you have all these victims of sexual assault are going, how can these people say that this guy is this wonderful role model? So they put out a statement where he says, we are aware of the pain that has been caused by the character letters that we wrote on behalf of Danny Masterson. We, she says, we support victims. We have done this historically through our work and will continue to do so in the future. He says, a couple of months ago, Danny's family reached out to us and they asked us to write character letters to represent the person that we knew for 25 years so that the judge could take that into full consideration relative to the sentencing. And she says, the letters were not written to question the legitimacy of the judicial system or the validity of the jury's ruling. He says, they were written for the judge to read and not undermine the testimony of the victims or re-traumatize them in any way. We would never want to do that, and we're sorry if that has taken place. Then she says, our heart goes out to every single person who's ever been a victim of sexual assault, sexual abuse, or rape. So they put out these letters saying, go easy on him. He's this wonderful guy. And then it becomes public. There's a huge backlash. And it's now, well, we, 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 
we didn't really, you know, mean to, to question the legitimacy or to, you know, soften the claims. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Here's my take on this. All right. If you, if, if you're a close friend of somebody and you want to go to bat for them and you want to say, Hey, I, I think they're, they're wonderful people, etc. I have no problem with you doing that. But then you should have the courage of your convictions and you should realize, okay, if I'm going to write character letters for somebody who's been, you know, convicted of two separate sexual assaults, I, I'm going to understand that there's going to be some heat from this. And I got to understand that there's going to be sexual assault victims, including the victims in this case, that are going to say, when, you know, you decide to wade in and say, gee, I think this guy's a wonderful role model, that's going to hack a lot of people off. If you make that decision to know it, nevertheless, go ahead and write that character letter, fine. This is the person that I know, judge, you know, we, we want you to go easy on them. If you make the decision to do that, that's fine. But you got to expect there's going to be a blowback. <laughs> then once you get that blowback, oh, well, we, we, we didn't mean, you know, we didn't mean anything. We didn't mean to question the, the jury's result or we didn't mean to question the fact that he needs to be held accountable. We, don't, we didn't mean any of that stuff. You cannot have it both ways. And it seems to me what happened in this case is they decide, hey, we're Hollywood celebs. We're going to come to the defense of our buddy. Fine. That's good. I, I, if you want to do that, that's great. You know, you're making the decision. We knew this guy. He's a friend of ours. These are the types of things that we're going to stand by our friend. I get it. I understand that. But then you should stand by your friend and not crumble like a cheap suit once you get some criticism for it. What do you think? 855-616-1620. Essen Kutcher and Myla, uh, Mila Kunis quickly realized how fast they can be canceled in today's culture. They're totally backpedaling. I stand with the victims. Well, I, again, you, you get to write these letters, and, and that's that's fine, but it's it's interesting to me that as soon as they're, I'm going to write these letters, and Danny's a wonderful guy, and he's like an older brother, and he was a role model, and all these different things. I think he's a wonderful human being. Uh, okay, but then it's like, oh, gee, we didn't think that this would be bothersome to the victims and things like that, and we would have never done that. Yeah, right. Um, I think there is a cancel culture thing there. Then one of our one of our texters, it's just... Welcome to my world. Not surprisingly, you did not mention Masterson was on the more recent Republican-leaning show called The Ranch. I have, I, I, I've never seen the the Ranch at all. That, but that's it. But it's my comment. That's your takeaway from this story. Heavy sigh. You know, it's just, it's like, and for those of you who just choose to view everything from the prism of politics, you really, you'll be happy. Take some life advice from me. You, you'll be. You'll be just happier if you move away from that particular thing. I mean, life really isn't is too short to obsess on those situations. Okay, I have a question. So here's the story: uh, the original Halloween, Samantha. This would be this would go into the category of you and your boyfriend. Your boyfriend likes to watch old movies. All right, have, have you seen the original Halloween movie? You've seen it. Okay, um, the original Halloween movies. Is the Halloween movie. It was, gosh, it came out, I mean, I was in college, so it was the, like, mid-1978, right? I remember, and, and this was the first, it, it really started the genre of kind of the slasher films, and and they, they took it from there. But the, I remember, I remember going to the theater and seeing that original Halloween movie, and you really, it, it was groundbreaking for its time. You didn't know what to expect. 
And I'll freely admit it scared the cheese out of me. And I also, I mean, I vividly remember the 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 woman I, I went. You know, we went on a date. You know, this is I take women on dates to horror movies. You know, what does that say about my me? You know, but I I I got over that. And I've as I, I in the affairs of the heart, I've outkicked my coverage twice in my life, and so I, I very much appreciate that. But so this is back in college, and I think I still have the the her fingernail marks in my right arm from when you know when the slasher type stuff jumps out and all. So. Um, I, so I remember watching that movie, and I remember being incredibly creeped out by it. The story is that that home, the movie was filmed in Pasadena, California. Um, the house where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis lived in the movie, she played Laurie Strode, um, that house is up for sale. According to the listing, uh, the residence has been owned by the same family for nearly three generations, 5,258 square feet, along with four bedrooms and three bathrooms, um, for a mere $1.8 million. You can own the house where they filmed the original movie of Halloween. And, I mean, it's just, it's, I guess I, I didn't realize from the movie and stuff it was as big as it was, but, you know, like there's the, there's the, the scene, I mean, the porch, you know, where she's sitting there, like, carving up the pumpkins and stuff. That's that's still there. So this is, you know, this is the movie where they, they did that. So just like the, I don't know, just like the movie, the, the house where they filmed A Christmas Story, you can go see that, or the Home Alone house in, um, you know, uh, in Illinois, you have that. But th- this is the Halloween house. And, again, there wasn't there wasn't a murder there per se, but you, this is the movie, this house that became famous by being in the movie that started the whole genre of slasher films. I was talking to one of my colleagues this morning, and my general's take was, you know, I, first of all, I would have no interest in buying, you know, a, a house that had been in a movie where we were going to have all those tourists. But the larger question, and, and this is something that has always intrigued me, is that in the area of real estate, there are... There are homes where bad things have happened. There are like murder houses. And I would never, ever, ever buy a murder house. I had a friend a number of years ago um, who, who bought, bought a house and she, she noticed that like a lot of the neighbors, you know, she moves in and fine and you know, she's on the porch. A lot of neighbors would walk by and they'd kind of like look, look at the house. And, you know, finally, somebody told her she'd been there for about six months that one of the previous owners had killed themselves in the upstairs like bedroom. <laughs> you know, she's like, what? You know, <laughs> what? And to that day, I mean, it just completely and totally freaked her out. And she ended up ultimately selling the house because she didn't want to live in a house where somebody had died under those kind of circumstances. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. I was completely sympathetic to that. And that is why in a number of jurisdictions, if there has been, if there is something like that that might impact the value of the home, you know, there's an obligation to disclose it. I know there's some people who think that that's just absolutely silly. I, for one, would not want to live in a home where there had been, I don't know, some awful crime of violence that had committed, been committed. I don't know if that's kind of freaky or just you, you believe in ghosts or whatever, but I mean, I wouldn't want to be in the bedroom where there'd been a double homicide, for example. 855-616-1620. Would you have any trouble 
purchasing and living in a home, I don't know, where there'd been a murder. 855-616-1620. I have two words. No thanks. Jeff, the first thing that came to mind was there's no way I would live in, sleep over at uh, Roman Polanski's house where Sharon Tate was one of the victims. Yeah, that's the uh, the, the Tate Lampiaga killings, the, the Charles Manson stuff. That house was demolished, and a new home was built from scratch with a new address. That, so um, it's not the same house. It looks nothing like the original house, but it, it was. it's in that location. I don't even think I'd want to live on on. <laughs> That, that property. I mean, all right, so it's the O.J. Simpson house. I don't know if that one's still there either. You know, the, the Jeffrey Dahmer apartment buildings, they know they took that down. Let's talk to Scott in South Milwaukee. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my phone sure. call. No, on this specific topic, what um, on this, on, there's, there was a, a home like in the Madison area, like one of the suburbs, whatever, near Sun Prairie, whatever. This is a trial that was in the news, whatever, um, um, last year was on court TV. It involved that, that Candler Halverson and how he, um, um, murdered his parents and then covered it and then covered it up and, um, and covered up the whole thing up. I mean, it was, it was a grotesque situation on what, on what, what all went on in there. But there is, no way in heck that I would want to um, purchase that home yeah. without knowing what what went on in that home because it was just a mess yeah. and it was it was it was I just that's all I had to say yeah no thank no I mean and again I I don't know I'm getting some texts and the point is oh come on man I mean if it's a nice house and you get a good value on it what would you mind I I don't know I mean. I know your home at middle of the it's middle of the night. You know you got the wind, it's creaking and stuff. And there's three people that got killed in the basement. I don't know. I mean, it's just I don't think of myself as being particularly sensitive. But at the same time, I don't and I don't believe in ghosts. But I guess I don't necessarily want to find out. You know, Jeff, it's like the Amityville house, the Amityville horror house in Amityville, New York. I don't know how someone could live in a house where someone is killed or there's a mass murder. I would be freaked out even at the slightest. Um, the slightest creak. Jeff, I buy foreclosed homes. You'd be surprised what percentage of houses have suicides in them. And and, and again, I, I kind of wrestle with this because I, I don't know. I mean, people people die at, at home, you know. And so if, if I, I guess it's one thing if I don't know, you live in a hundred year old house and somebody you know eighty years ago you know died peacefully in their bed. That that's one thing. It's just it's. Kind of the the crimes of violence and stuff like that. No, I I, I stand by this. Don't want to live in a murder house. Rod in Sheboygan. Roger and WTMJ. Hello. Hey Jeff, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, my opinion. I mean, a house is a house. That's the way I look at it. I mean, I will never buy a house personally. Um, but if I were and I found out that you know something horrible happened there. I'm not going to focus on what happened in the past. I'm going to focus on what I can make that house into a home for my kids, someplace where they can feel safe and loved and taken care of. I'm not going to worry about what happened, you know, before. Uh, I just look at it, you know, it's, it, it's a house. It's made of brick, wood, glass. It's it's nothing. To me, it's not a big deal. So, well, that's good. Well, I'm thank, and there's a lot of people out there. Thanks for calling, and I appreciate it. I mean, if, if you're in a situation where you get a lot of dough, it's a good value and stuff, you don't care, and that, that's that's fine. To me, it's that sort of, 
it, it would just it would not be something that I would be particularly comfortable in. But that's good because the fact that there's a lot of people out like me out there make it less likely that well there, there's there's less demand for that house, which means that guys like you who don't care about that and I respect that you can get it for a lot less money. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff, I could easily live in a murder house. How about a funeral home? They have a show out called We Bought a Funeral Home. Interesting show. The family was from Canada. Well, my friend and former colleague here, Jane Matinair, she, her, that was the family business. She grew up in a funeral home as well. And I, I guess it's anything you're getting used to. Some One of our texters is like, wow. He says, you know, you're a snowflake. I get called many things. I don't think many people think of me as a snowflake, though. Yeah, you're a snowflake. There's no such thing as a haunted house. It wouldn't be a problem for me. And my comment was famous last words. <laughs> okay, there's no such thing as a haunted. I, I don't think there is. I don't believe in ghosts. But on the other hand, I don't believe in tempting fate either. Jeff, my in-laws live several houses away from Jeffrey Dahmer's grandmother's house. They knew him and his grandmother. That house did sell. Um, but I can't imagine living. Um, yeah, there. And, of course, the apartment building where Dahmer lived, that, that was demolished a, a number of years ago. So I don't know. Like I say, if. if it's it's a free country. You get to buy that. But I, I think, you know, if, if I found out that there had been a crime of violence that had gone on in a particular house, I think I would have I would have passed on that. We're not going to have a chance to open up the phone lines and discuss this today, but we are going to do it tomorrow. Um, as I, I mentioned at the top of the show, the the the, the breaking news was the week long dispute between ESPN, which is owned by Disney and Spectrum, which is owned by Charter Communications, a cable thing, after a week, that has been settled. And so what's happening is uh, you, if you are a Spectrum subscriber and you go and you turn on the ESPN channels or FX or whatever, they're back. You know, they, they've settled this dispute. The, the details are starting to emerge, but it appears that What's happening is that Spectrum has agreed to pay ESPN slash Disney a little bit more money, and they've also reached an arrangement regarding streaming where, you know, if you are a subscriber of a certain package on Spectrum, you will get access to some of the Disney streaming stuff. And, you know, we'll have more details tomorrow. But I think one of the real interesting questions is going to be what happened over time, and that is over that one week, you know, have – has this caused more people to make alternative arrangements to say, okay, I'm, I'm now gonna, I'm gonna cut the cord and I'm going to, I don't know, replace Charter or Spectrum with, um, one of the alternatives like Hulu Plus or YouTube? Is, have, have people's reaction been, well, you know, they took all that stuff off and I found I didn't necessarily really miss it. I'm going to be curious, or is this gonna just be a tempest in a teapot that now that everything is back to normal, that, you know, people are going to say, okay, no harm, no foul. Of course, we're going through the same thing. If you have Dish TV, Dish TV, um, they're in a similar sort of dispute with the Hearst TV companies. That's why if you have Dish TV, um, you're, you're not getting Channel 12 um, locally because, you know, those have been pulled off. So I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how all this plays out. Uh, I think there was some pressure to get this whole thing done before tonight's big Monday night football game. And so that they were able to get it done. Everybody's making nice now. I just wonder if there's been any sort of long-term fallout from this. And we'll discuss it tomorrow.